there's a Chinese word for crisis, and it's a symbol that means danger and opportunity. All right. Welcome, everybody, to Speaking Greeks. Uh, in this quarterly episode, uh, we got Dale Perryman. Uh, he was actually requested by some users of Speaking Greeks. I don't know if you knew that, Dale, but uh, you were actually that. you were requested by name. And uh, when I first reached out to you, I think clear back in May, and then um, yeah, and then I, I ended up rescheduling on you and going back and forth on uh, just Speaking Greeks as a whole. But anyway, um, I would like to welcome Dale Perryman on. Uh, he has a super awesome background, a super interesting background that's a lot different than the. Uh, than the traditional trader background, I think. So it'll be super. It'll be super cool to hear. Um, so yeah, if you want to go ahead and start off by introducing yourself, and we'll just jump right in. All right. Well, welcome everybody. Looks like we've got a good turnout here. And my name is Dale Perryman. I guess uh, I've spent the last thirty years doing my uh, formal career was doing corporate training and development, mainly on the soft side of the skills, helping people get work done in and through other people. So, and then, uh, so Kirk, would you like for me to kind of give my orientation or my background on trading or, or, or just start with that? Uh, I mean, we could start there. You said you did corporate training and where, what what kind of like what industry was that? Well, you know, I worked for two different Fortune 100 companies doing internal training and development, and then I went out on my own in 1993. So I've been a freelancer since before they were cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, 93. That's been uh, seven plus 20, 30 years as a freelancer. Um, doing corporate training and development, mostly supervisor development employee development, soft skills, uh, conflict resolution, problem solving and decision making, dealing with difficult people, um, you know, all kinds of topics that are more what people would consider soft skills. So was it like uh, like more like a consultant, a consultant role? Well, um, you know, a consultant is a guy that borrows your watch and tells you the time. Um, I would consider it was more of more of training and development. So I did I taught the seven habits of highly effective people, uh, bestseller book by Stephen Covey, um, you know, f- for a number of years throughout Johnson and Johnson companies domestically and internationally, um, among others. Right now so- I'm doing some. Uh, supervisor training for Trinity Industries, and they make things out of, they make railroad cars and do railroad car leasing. Um, work through a small boutique training and development firm where we also run um, uh, assessment centers where we put leaders through some very rigorous simulations and then give them feedback, kind of tr- trying to prepare them for. Uh, future challenges that they might face as leaders. Interesting. So, yeah, I used to do that for uh, when I worked in information security. Uh, we used to do tabletop exercises of data breaches. 
and walk through the walk through a data breach with the like the knock and the uh, the response team incident response right. and something similar. So it's kind of like a so you kind of do like workshops where you like public speaking role plus like a class aspect to it. Yeah, the assessment center stuff. We would uh, we would sometimes bring executives in to deliver a presentation that involved some downsizing into a small town simulation environment where uh, employees were rather hostile. Uh, and yeah. the the consultants also played the role of the actors and actresses. So I think I announced to the other consultants one time, I said, for this next guy, I'm going to cry. You know, <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> I actually worked myself up into kind of the, an emotional response, describing how my father worked for this company. And on his deathbed, he told me how proud he was of me and, you know, I just don't know working for this company if 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 I can just tell my kids the same thing. You know, and I managed to <laughs> make my voice crack. How how do you break into that field? <laughs> well, like that's, that seems like a really like a interesting path to get to. Well, in graduate school at Oklahoma State, I taught introduction to speech communication where I taught undergraduates um, how to deliver presentations. And I really wanted to get into corporate training and development, but I didn't even know, uh, you know, as a kid from a small town in Stillwater, Oklahoma, going to school, if those jobs even existed. But I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. Um, I had a great mentor, uh, first job and I took in 1987, working in the defense business. And he was retired army and a lot of the military in the army they were exposed to leadership development before corporations were uh, you know two of the oldest inst the oldest institutions around are either the military or the church i mean they learned learned to fight or learn to worship you know and so they were getting leadership stuff before anybody in industry was and so i got a lot of exposed to people that i'd just read about in graduate school and I remember my boss told me he had met Edward Deming and I was like oh my god you met him I was like it was you know you met somebody who knew God personally or something so <laughs> so it was cool and had a great mentor and uh, that was my first was in the defense business and then after that it was and I learned how to do something for nothing in that job and then the next job was with Arco Oil and Gas Company, and they had a, a nice budget, and I got exposed to a lot of consultants and other people doing this kind of training and then decided to break out on my own in 1993. And then, um, so I have I have some notes written here, and I have some, uh, like, some of your other uh, job history in your, uh, that you would put on, like, a resume. So if I go out of chronological order, let me know. So okay. I have, so, like, I have, like, you were a, a professor, something with video game production, like a professor yeah. or something. Was that before or after corporate training? That was kind of in the middle of it. Um, I was an adjunct faculty for the SMU Guildhall School of Video Game Production. And I worked with aspiring video game producers. I don't know anything about developing a video game, but I do know about getting work done in and through other people. And so really, it's not 
that too different from working with research and development scientists at Johnson & Johnson to launch a new product. You're just, your product tends to be video games. So it's just getting people together, discussing your concept, coming to agreements, and then working through all the difficulties to get work done in and through other people. What year would have that? Would that? Ah, uh, gosh, that would have been pr- probably, um, I'd say, seven years ago. Okay, because I'm I'm trying to pin like what console would have been popular at that time. So that would probably been like sixteen. So that would be like PlayStation Four era. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I'm not saying that you worked on PlayStation, but I'm thinking that like that era. Sure. And then I got exposed. I I don't, I don't. Yeah. But it was around 2016. I I think about, uh, you know, how old my, when when I bought my last laptop and uh, it's probably since then, it was probably closer to, uh, let's see, COVID was 2020. So it was somewhere between 2016 to 2018. So what was it like, I guess, working in a corporate training environment and then jumping into like a video game environment? Because I feel like there's just two completely different personality types. Well, you know, I'm also used to dealing with poker players. So I'm used to dealing with eccentric characters and, you know, gamers are also pretty eccentric characters. You know, people walk in with their hair spiked and different colors and and uh you know it's not too unlike you know some guy that's covered with full sleeve tattoos you know with his baggy pants hanging down and thinking he's a gangster that's a poker player so <laughs> it's always funny to me some guy like that'll come in and high five me and and all you know in my age demographic people look at me and go how do you know that guy <laughs> so do, do the same like tactics and like methodologies work among the two different demographics Oh, you know, they're just they're just different people. But I think I appreciate um, differences. And so yeah, I, I can understand that. Yeah. And also coming from business, I I tried to focus not on the theoretical because I, rem- I know from my school days, I never remember that stuff. So I tried to make it really practical. So we talk and every every day session they'd come with like some challenge that they were faced with and usually it's some form of you know it should have taken this guy x number of hours to do this and it's taken him three weeks and you know like okay well what do you think is the issue here and it usually comes down to some discussion and i'd say okay let's role play it you know and i'd play the guy and they'd play the uh, production producer trying to have a discussion with me and and then i'd say uh, okay let me try you know and i'd step in and i'd kind of model the conversation and so i tried to make things practical like like that you know we would where we would role play and then they would leave the class and they'd say okay your assignment is to have that real discussion with that employee and then to come back how did it go what did you learn what would you have done differently so i tried to make it really practical experiences because I knew that's what I valued when I went to school. I don't remember, you know, the theory as much as, you know, real life experiences that had an impact. Right. Right. And I think you, I think I actually see that as a, like a, as, uh, as education progresses, you know, especially in the tech field, like a GitHub profile is worth so much more than a college degree. 
Sure. An active GitHub profile, I should say. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, and you do you do some, like, educational stuff with traders and stuff. And, like, we talk about, uh, and speaking Greeks, we often talk about, like, the clashing egos and the different personality types just in the trading world. So, I guess, is there, how much overlap is there between, like, the suit-wearing world, the, the poker player world, and the trader world, and the gamer world? You know, that's four yeah. vastly different. Right. Like, is it a Venn diagram, or is it four different circles? Well, let's talk about uh, poker players and option traders. Uh, I think the overlap is there's an understanding of mathematics. There's an understanding of probabilities. There's an understanding of having to make quick decisions with partial information. There's also an element of um, bankroll management. And so all of those skills, I think, overlap between poker players and um, option traders. So I think there's some natural tendency if, if a person's a poker player to kind of, because they're both just games that can be beaten. And then you could apply game theory, not only to poker playing, but you could apply game theory to options trading. Yeah. Yep. And just and, like and... finding strategies that work. I mean, first you got to find strategies that work. That beat the game, um, and, and seek out your edge. Yeah, and seek out your where's your edge. So I'm and, not I'm I'm not a big poker player. Is that is it? So I could be I'm I'm speaking with very minimal knowledge beyond just like basic rules. But is it is there like a uh, there's a there's an air of randomness I guess to yeah a, a, how how cards are dealt. Well, you know, a lot of people who aren't poker players will just lump it all into a category called gambling. And, you know, I think there are poker players who are gamblers. Not all poker players I would classify as gambling, although there's some component of it. Um, there's some times where you're playing to a coin flip, but your edge is when you're, you're, you've got a greater probability than a coin flip. So just like options traders... We usually we want to make trades where we have a higher than a 50% chance of a win rate most of the time. Unless, of course, you believe that your win is going to be larger than your losses. In that case, you could you could tolerate a, a smaller win percentage. Right. And there's the the um, commonly used analogy that like as option sellers, we are the casino or be the house. Yeah, so I, could, I, think, I, I, I see the connection. And like poker, I think good poker players, they make more of their money off of gamblers. A good option seller makes more of, of their money off of gamblers. And, you know, that's kind of why the casino says, you know, the odds are against you. Step right up. You know, I'll give, I'll give you uh, a drink comps and comps to stay in the hotel you know just keep playing i'm going to limit your bet sizing so i can't get hurt and they know what the odds are and they know the odds that if you just keep sitting there long enough that you'll give it back and that's typically in table games and blackjack and especially slot machines where it's just the casino has such an edge yeah i can't get into the slot machine thing like we went on like a uh, just like a one-off like date night we went out to a local casino and hit a different restaurant and played through a little bit in the slots or whatever and i'm just looking at everyone around me 
And I remember looking at their balances and this guy that was sitting by, he was like four or $500 up. And by the time I looked over, he had dwindled it down to like nearly a hundred. And I was just like, man, like I just can't sit there and bang that, but that dopamine button like that. Like at least with like cards, I feel like I have some sense of like decision-making and control, but like slots are just so obviously rigged. I don't want to say rigged, but like obviously against you. Yeah, well, I have a special system for slots. It's just uh, keep walking past them and keep going and don't play them. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, that, I, yeah, I can't get into it. So you um, also had a stint in stand-up? I did. You know, in college, I did some stand-up. And, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. But uh, one time I had to follow a guy uh well, let me back up. We we were invited to entertain a group of linemen. These were electricians. And I just, I show up to this place with this guy. I just met this guy. I didn't know him from Adam. And, you know, a bunch of rough and tough guys with their hard hats next to them. And I said to the guy I came with, I said, if we're not funny, we're going to get killed. And um, <laughs> the guy that I was with, um, he juggled live mice. Oh, wow. I think it was before PETA, I think it was invented. And this <laughs> guy had a um, a um, plunger next to him. And he made a joke that he wasn't a very good juggler. And he's juggling these mice. And every now and then he would drop one and the mouse would take off running. And he would grab this plunger and have all the linemen yelling, oh, uh, I don't know if your podcast is okay to curse, but oh yeah, swear away. He's like, oh shit, you know, as he chased this mouse uh, with a plunger, (laughs) and it was at that moment I said, if I if I can follow that, I can follow anything. And uh, but yeah, I did a in in took a few classes and did some open mics enough to know kind of what it takes in the world of stand-up comedy. And, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a tough life. And, you know, for every, a few people that really make it, there's thousands of people just, you know, working for nothing and, or working for free or, or doing open mics. But, you know, I saw a lot of uh, people who started off just kind of, not very funny but became really funny because they worked hard at it and uh so it's a lot of hard work i say i think that would be difficult like i do i've done a number of speaking events and like i can think of somewhere like i just had a hard time reading the room yeah. and like if i just got up there and started bombing and <laughs> i couldn't read the room and like get it back under control i it, it, I would end up on like TikTok or something like that. And right. Just like, look at this guy. <laughs> well, you can, um, yeah, you, you could work, um, you know, we had classes where we would work eight or nine weeks, one hour a week with homework. And then you try to take 10 minutes of your best material and perform it. So these guys that are doing, you know, these hour and a half Netflix shows, you know, I just the time it takes to develop, you know, a, a 90 minutes of material that just crushes it is, uh, you know, it takes years if you don't. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I watch uh, I used to watch a lot of uh, Kill Tony with Tony Hinchcliffe and his I don't know. Are you familiar with him? He's out in I'm Austin. Not. 
So he um, basically his show, it's like a live podcast, live show, but he has comedians come up and what and they, he pulls names from a hat. So if you okay. show up and you want to perform, but they do one minute skits and then he does like he roasts them and like they have guest comedians and stuff like that. But he talks about like how difficult it is to even write just like a solid minute of jokes. Yeah. Yeah. We had some open mics where they would you could choose to be heckled if you wanted to. You could also choose to get uh feedback from other comics, uh kind of to help punch it up. You know, so before you went up you'd you'd kinda say, Here's what I want. Uh, and it was just, you know, open mics are mostly comics and they don't really laugh at you. If you know if it's funny if they look at you and go, That's funny. That's funny. You know, they point at you and say, that's funny. You know, that's that's the way you know if a comic really likes your material. So how long did you do the stand-up thing then? Uh, you know, f- f- several months. You know, and then COVID hit. And, oh. you know, nobody was going out um, in person. So, you know, and, and enough to have, like, a good following. I know who the comics are. I know who the funny ones are. I know a few that have really done really well and are, are building it into a career. Other people have gone at kind of almost the producer level, so they're kind of uh, forging, engage, coming up with engagements and connecting other comics. So, yeah. So, so how did you get into trading then? Well, um, let's go back to 1988. I bought my first mutual fund. And I had to drive to the library to research it because there was no internet. And I was a buy and hold forever follower of Warren Buffett till about 2008. 2008, you know, we saw a big dip. And I remember I was playing poker at in Atlantic City and just watching CNBC and watching my portfolio go south. And a buddy of mine who worked for a hedge fund said, "What are you doing to hedge?" And I said, what's a hedge? <laughs> and so, so shortly after that, started selling covered calls, which is a lot of where a lot of people start selling covered calls on existing positions. That was about 2008. I think in 2010-ish, I wrote a blog post called Double Your Money Every Three Years Selling Apple Options or something like that. I continued to do that and for a number of years, and, and then I calculated my cost basis for Apple, and it was minus $40 a share. I just sold so much premium for several years until it, the, the cost basis was minus $40. So that was probably, you know, in 2010. I, I would say probably in 2000. 15 2016 i uh, discovered tasty trade started opening up my game selling strangles other things and then uh, probably um 2017 started doing some of the zero dte stuff um put spreads call spreads and iron flies and iron flies has kind of become my latest thing that I'm focused more on. So for us spoiled youngins that uh, didn't have to ever go to a library, because I know, like, I remember when I first started trading zero DTE, I and we would I would talk about commissions and stuff. There was like a couple of the older Facebook users would be like, 
who cares about the commissions? We used to have to call on the phone and pay $7 each way, blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> with this, like, real, like, get off my lawn mentality. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, like, what, what did, like, what does library research of a mutual fund look like? Did they have, did, like, the library oh. just have, like, a prospectus readily available? Or did you have to, like, well, add, what does that look like? There was a printed newsletter called Outlook. And there was a couple of them. And you would read through some of these, and it would give ratings on different mutual funds and uh, and other stocks. So imagine if there was just a uh, a regular weekly printout. Uh, it's it, instead of reading it on the internet, you just kind of read some weekly um, take on somebody's. It's just like a Wall Street Journal that's kind of focused more on uh, tra- investing. So people weren't really traders back then, and maybe unless you were in the pit or something. I mean, I don't think there were retail traders per se that were traders because, frankly, you couldn't afford to. I mean, at $19.95 per transaction or something like that, when when the Internet was first invented, you know, it, just, it didn't really lend itself to the amount of trading that we're doing. Right. And... So it's funny though, because like finance, like even today, like if you look on Twitter, how many people are selling a newsletter? Yeah, <laughs> and they're right. still out there, and they always have been. Right. Um, you started selling CCs on uh, cover calls on Apple. Did you ever get a have them called away? Ah, uh, you know, I actually own the underlying. Oh, and nice. So, man. yeah, I own the stock and sell calls against it, and uh, you know, I guess if it got called away, it's start over you know with something else you wanted to own but yeah i asked because so i when i first got into like into trading before i had discovered options really i came from like crypto and then i was in robin hood and i would just sw- straight swing trade like equities yeah and um i i was crushing it with tesla and then i eventually decided to like just quit trading it and to hold it and it rocketed and then i started selling covered calls because the premium's so good on it and I got the cost basis down to near zero and I got real aggressive with the covered calls and with all the splits and the appreciation since then, they're like, yeah, it's cool. Like I got, I got, it was a good trade, but like, man, it could have been so much better. So I was wondering if being Apple, if it ever got called away from you and you kind of regret those covered calls. You know, I can't really, uh, recall it getting, um, pulled away my biggest grand slam home run uh and i can't attribute this to anything but luck but there was a company called id biomedical and one of my friends had a a broker in alaska and you know he really loved this company and it was back when we had like a blue uh, vaccine shortage and they were working on technology for uh, an inhalant that could give you so you wouldn't have to have a shot you could do it as an inhalant and i remember it was sometime in the early 2000s i think and um i i, I sold everything that was a tax loss for tax loss harvesting and i put everything into id biomedical idbe at the time and I think I had accumulated 16,000 shares at an average share price of $2 a share. So there's $32,000 invested in this one little thing. And, it, you know, and 
you know, held it for about five years, I think. And then it got bought out uh, for something like $30 a share. Oh, and nice. So it was, you know, that's my one, I guess, final analogy in poker. It'd be like my final table in a big tournament kind of a win. I mean, I didn't get out at the top. A dollar cost averaged slowly kind of to get out of this thing. But that's my one, like, trifecta. So as much as I like to advise new players in the market not to swing for the fences the truth is at that point in my life i swung for the fences and got lucky now there's another there's a ton of other things that i invested in that aren't even around anymore going through the dot-com kind of thing so you know i'm sure i gave considerable amount back and uh, other speculative things that didn't work out and then in fifteen sixteen, you discovered Tasty Trade and started expanding your options strategies. Yep. So, yeah, you want to talk about that, and then we'll talk about the transition to zero DT. So I would kind of call that uh, opening up my game, right? So I, now I'm selling naked puts, using a wheel strategy, selling strangles, uh, you know, all, all of those things. So yeah, so that was like the Tasty Trade kind of philosophy so yeah and then gradually from there found zero dte and then it was three days a week you could only do it zero dtes mondays wednesdays and fridays so for a while tuesdays and thursdays was freed up you know it wasn't really that busy on tuesdays and thursdays but now it's trading five days a week so you can do this you know every day of the week what kind of effect do you think the five-day expiration had on, had on um, I guess, our results? Because I, I traded back, I think I started in early 2019 when it was still three days a week. And when I'm running back tests, like an option Omega, um, I, I, I see there's usually a significant change. And I guess it's because there's more trades being executed when you're doing zero DT back tests in like a five day five time expiration. But a lot of people blame that also for the suppressed VIX or uh, the lack of premium or our reduced performance this year. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people kind of point to the five expiration. So I'm, I'm curious of what your opinion is. Well, it's my opinion that there's just so much volume that gets traded in ES futures, SPY, SPX, all of the kind of the major uh, components of the S&P 500. I I tend to believe that uh, uh, among option sellers and zero DTE, that we're still, as crazy it is to think about, we're still such a, min- a small portion of that, that for us to kind of move the market, uh, I just think that it's, it's so large. So in one thing, I think, what it's done is it's added a lot more liquidity to the marketplace. Yep, I hundred I hundred percent agree with that. And liquidity can be measured by the the spread between the bid and the ask. So it's become tighter, tighter bid ask spread, uh, which has made it better for all of us. Um, I will say I think it's made uh, brokers more wealthy because I mean I just look at at my commissions and uh, they're making almost as much money as I am many times because of all the fees and commissions. Yep. I, uh, I saw a, or no, it was whenever um, uh, I don't want to 
McGalligott, Charlie McGalligott, I think that's how you say his name. He was on Odd Lots talking about zero DTE. And I think he makes a comment in there about how you can take like the Wall Street Journal's chart that they made that was like the interest in zero DTE growth and overlay it with the CBOE stock price. And they almost line up like pretty close. Yeah. So they're just making bank. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they 100 percent are. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, I 100 percent agree with you on that, though, because like I think it was uh, Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs just came out like last week whenever the market had a couple bad days here in the last like week or two and said that it was due to D- zero DTE traders. And like I'm just not buying it. Uh, I think those are people that are just looking to, for somebody to blame. And uh, I would actually I would venture to guess that whoever wrote that article probably doesn't do any trading in this space. Either that or their jobs, they're they're brushing up against a resume generating event and they want to blame the big, scary retail. And <laughs> well, that that's clickbait. You know, you post yeah, anything exactly, that yeah. sounds scary and blame somebody. And But I think it's a lack of understanding, you know, whether it's AI or, or zero, uh, zero DTE going daily. You know, when electricity was first invented, people were scared of electricity. When microwaves were first invented, I have a, uh, a friend's mother who was a doctor who, you know, she was scared to death of, you know, what it was going to do to our food. Yeah, I think there. Yeah, wasn't there? It was like a like a big uh, like a hysteria. Like there was like ads and stuff that were like anti microwave, right? So anytime there's change, you know, people come out of the woodwork, kind of finding out, figuring out ways to, you know, blame it for the evils of society. Get off my lawn! <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting too. Like my son's starting junior high, and um. Whenever I like when I was in school, you know, it was you won't have a calculator in your pocket everywhere you go. And now it's like they have they carry a laptop with them everywhere. And like they're encouraged. It's just such a change in mindset from like the boomers of my era. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody probably told Dave Chappelle, what are you going to tell jokes for a living? (laughs) My grandfather, when I told him I was going to study speech communication, you know what he told me? What are you going to do with that? Talk to people? Yeah, the answer would be yes. <laughs> yeah, that's where I've spent the majority of my career. Well, that's what whenever I, I – I think I even whenever I said – like told my parents, and we had – I grew up in like the beige gateway computer era, like the giant beige box in the cow box. You remember gateways? Yeah. And uh, so like that was my first computer, and I can remember saying – I think it was uh, – I saw the movie Hackers. And I said, like, that's what I wanted to do. And yeah. they were like, yeah, okay. Like, you, like that's not ever going to be a thing. But, and now, right. looking, like, the, the security industry is, like, one of the most important industries probably right, available right now. So For sure. So, um, you did, over COVID, you had, you did, like, kind of, like, an options boot camp, right? Right. And then you, you taught that in, like, an interesting way. You know, uh, all live training kind of stopped. And so all of a sudden I had this gift of time. Uh, and so what, I, and everybody, all my friends were asking me, you know, how, tell, me, tell us how to trade options because people were getting rich on GameStop and AMC and Wall Street bets and, you know, all this crazy stuff. And yep. so um, I 
decided I'd put together a boot camp, uh, eight-week boot camp, where every week we'd learn a different option trade, and then they would practice it on a simulator that next week. So you were to trade only things that you'd learned how to trade. You couldn't just go off the reservation. And then we bought into it like a poker tournament, small stakes, $20 a piece. But then we paid uh, first, second, and third place. So in a way, it made it real because it was playing for real money, even though it wasn't real because it was on a simulator. So, and then every week we would publish the results on a results board about who were the leaders. And uh, a couple of my um, friends that won the contest, one of them has surpassed me really, and now is building trading bots and has a hedge fund putting money behind him. And, you know, so he's doing extremely well. That's, that's super cool. Um, And then so today you have your own you have your own Discord group, right? Right. We have a, a Discord group called Trade Diff, and we also have a website at tradediff.com. Um, and right now it's in beta, and my uh, developer partner has just had a newborn, and he's working hard at Bill.com. So discretionary time for for Mike is very difficult. So we're slowly edging and, and building out some stuff on Trade Diff. But it's our goal to have uh, API connections to make it easier for people to um, track their performance. And so in the meantime, until we get that ready to go, um, you know, I've had my friend Paul, who was my study buddy in college and helped tutor me through calculus and all the math classes, who spent his entire career uh, doing data analytics, helped to build me a really great Excel spreadsheet that's giving me some really good data, especially around uh, my latest project of trading iron flies. So what kind of metrics do you track then in the, in the spreadsheet? Well, let me, uh, you know, I, I've got a um, pivot table and uh, that every day will tell me the strike of all of the flies that I traded and the sum of my net income. And I trade five different accounts and then it will, so it'll give me my daily performance, a sum of the net income per contract. And then under stats, it'll show me my uh, gross income in each account, the daily gross income per contract. Uh, you know, I've got some win rates, the average number of contracts uh, traded, um, the number of trading days. Currently, I'm running at about uh, 68 to 69% daily win rate. Um, so average win on a winning day, average loss on a losing day, uh, the max win per contract ever, the max loss per contract ever. So I'm trying to give people a realistic expectation if they choose to trade the strategy of what they might expect. Um, would love to have uh, some Python programmer uh, help to backtest it because kind of backtesting this strategy doesn't work on standard backtesters. And so I really need... Um, some kind of a programming uh, help in uh, back testing that. That was going to be my next question: was how 
if you used anything like Option Omega and then how closely it tracked to your live trades. But I guess if they're not um, as mechanical as Option Omega would allow, do you do you want to talk about the strategy at all on a deeper level? Yeah, but first let me step back and say the only way to backtest it would be to program it export the times of the trades into a CSV file, run it through uh, some kind of a back tester that uh, takes CSV files or buy the data with, you know, somebody that's a, hopefully a programmer and a trader who understands both worlds who could help you test it. So, yeah. So now let me talk, um, I guess, high level about the strategy is, you know, in this strategy, I don't really use, um, technicals as much so every day starting around 10 a.m central time i'll put on my first iron fly and for those of you i think most of your listeners probably would know what an iron fly is it's a four-legged trade where you're selling a put and a call at the money and then you're buying uh, wings. The wings help to determine uh, your buying power and help you determine the level of risk that you're taking. Um, so what I'll do is I'll sell one at about 10 a.m. And assuming that like today uh, we collected $13.55 for the first fly. Um, yesterday, we started with $17.45 because of low volatility, you know, it's a small. So then what I do is I, I look at if the market goes up plus or minus seven points, I'll add another iron fly. So like today, our first iron fly that we put on was at 44.30. So when the market then moved to 44.37, I put on a second fly at 44.40. So then... If it touches 44.30 price, you drop the 44.40s. If it touches 44.40, you drop the 44.30s. So the analogy I will use here is imagine a video game where you've got one, two, or three buckets. So we're constantly adding buckets, taking buckets away, trying to catch the clothes in one of our buckets. Ideally, by the end of the day, we'll have three buckets out there. And we're trying to, and as it gets closer to expiration, this slow trickle at 8.30 a.m. becomes a torrential downpour in the last hour. Now, most people don't like to trade flies in the last hour because it's too chaotic. But I say, if you can stand the heat, get on in that kitchen and if you can come up with a strategy that allows you to stand the heat and be profitable there's uh let me follow the metaphor plenty of good meals in there <laughs> to so, follow my stand the heat get out of the kitchen metaphor so you're essentially you're you're fault you're basically tracking the underlying price in seven seven point bites and then hoping and then trying to nail that pin at the end of the day nail and, with that the, pin. and then you have you said you had three buckets so you'll end up with like basically three three profit zones yeah so today at the t end of the day we had the 4335s the, the 4330s the 4335s and the 
340s. And then how wide are these flies that you're selling? Um, well, how vary? wide in terms of the legs or in terms of when uh, the width of the wings? Yeah, the width of the wings. Uh, the width of the wings at the beginning of the day, um, uh, normally the, the puts will be 50 away, the calls will be 40 away. Uh, then later in the day, it'll go from 40 to puts to 30 to calls. And real late in the day, it goes 20 to 15. Because, you know, the further you move away from the money late in the day, uh, that the, the, the further wings don't hold their value. Right, right. So you're just naturally getting tighter as premium Naturally getting tighter as premium disappears. So my own philosophy, uh, you know, if, if I could sell, if I could buy a wing for 40 cents and then the next wing is 20 cents, I'd rather have $5 of less risk than get an extra 20 cents. Oh, so yeah, just sure. kind of the law of... Um, uh, what decrease the law where it's, it's, it's the value slowly going down. I'm not familiar with it. The law of, yeah. Okay. The law of decaying numbers. <laughs> yeah. We'll call it that. Yeah. Um, so that's super interesting. Is there any kind of like take profits on the way or do you, are you just kind of like on those I'm, seven point moves, I guess you're still probably getting something out of each, each move. Would that be accurate? Well, uh, let me phrase it, the question in another way. It's kind of a question you didn't ask, but yeah, the the ma how much do you usually make or lo lose on uh, the trades that you have to close? And that would vary anywhere from a, a probably a, a one dollar win to a four dollar loss, and it depends upon uh, two um, variables. One, how much you collected for the fly, and two, how long you've been able to hold it before you had to close it. So if I collected $16 for a fly, and I've held it two hours, and I still have to close it when it breaches one of those, that 10-point range, it's always a 10-point range uh, between the two flies, you could still make a couple bucks. On the other hand, if I sold it for $8 and it breaches in 30 minutes, I've probably got a 3 to $4 loss. Yeah, but that, that still isn't, like, that's nothing crazy, especially, I mean, especially as zero DT traders that are doing the strangles. Like, that's usually, that's pretty similar to what our current setup is. It, and it's, I know it's not crazy. Yeah, and I know some other people that were trading um, a continuous iron fly like that, and they were doing like a $2 take profit and a $4 stop, I think. And uh, it was just super mechanical like that so they could automate it, and it was just a continuous fly. Yeah. Yeah, before I traded it this way, well, that's what I did. I took profits at 12%, or I took a 30% stop loss. That and was you my old way of trading and it had about a 70% success rate similar to what uh, I'm trading now but the difference is with this strategy you're giving yourself a chance every day for an 8 to 10 dollar win or more 
I'm not saying that's all the time, but your your average win on a winning day is anywhere you know from seven to eight dollars per contract. That's that's which that's is really... comparable loss. Your average loss on a losing day slightly larger than that, but the win rate is about seventy percent. Yeah, that sounds really from a ten thousand foot view. That sounds really like sounds like a solid strategy. I, I I can't find any holes in it really, besides like a sh complete market shutdown. But then we're all in trouble. So yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's one of my favorites. I mean, I like to do one one twos. I like have some bullish spreads on. Um, so I have an analogy to like gardening, like you have a garden plot that's just going to make money when the market goes up. You have a small garden plot that's going to make money if the market goes down. And then you've got a, a pretty big garden plot, probably 50 percent of the of your area. That's just for neutral strategies and that iron flies and all the zero DTEs would fall into that garden plot. So do you have any kind of like buy and hold, like just straight equity holdings in your financial portfolio or is it just straight trading? Not on purpose. And what I mean by that is sometimes I'll fall into something where I'm taking assignment. Okay. Um, let's say you got a strangle on and for some reason it's gone way down. Your puts are in the money and you just go. Screw it. I think this thing is oversold. I'm just going to take assignment and sell calls on it because I just think this is overdone. Um, you know, so sometimes I'll take assignment on something by that I say by accident, but then I choose to keep it. And then do you do anything that's longer term now besides zero DT? Well, I do uh, bullish. Oh, you said one, one, two, and some bullish spreads. One, one, two, but uh, bullish spreads. Uh, you know, I like to buy uh, seventy delta leaps. Typically, what are called poor man's covered calls. But I have a, a core of things that, you know, I like the big names that are highly liquid: Apple, Microsoft, Google, Chevron. You know, uh, where I right now I I'm long uh, the the Jan the January seventy delta, and then I'll just sell weekly, um, you know, twenty to thirty delta against that. And then, so if you're if you're short call in a poor man's cover call, if you get if your short call gets breached, do you just close and take the L, or do you do you exercise the long option to well, to counteract it? If my short call uh, gets breached. I think it's a decision tree. Imagine a decision tree, and you ask yourself, am I still bullish on this position? Am I now neutral on this position? What's your premise? Many times I'm, I continue to have like a long-term bull premise on this. So I've kind of got a little bit of a non-traditional. I don't mind uh, rolling it out of the money for a debit because I'm viewing it, and I notice Sandra is listening, and I'm always kind of giving this debate or telling her this. The way I view it is I'm buying intrinsic value on my long option. So, you know, if I if I paid $5 worth of debit, but I might be paying $5 for $8 of intrinsic value. 
So okay. I'm buying $8 of intrinsic value, but I'm getting it for five. So I'm kind of like getting a bargain. So that's kind of a way I frame it in my own mind uh, uh, to somehow to, ke to keep rolling it slightly out of the money. So if it, if it's, yeah, so. Yeah. So back back to the flies. How, have you been trading those for a while, or is that something new that was crafted in the low vol environment? I have been trading them for a while. I have um, probably I've only been trading them strictly with this new style, and I've been um, capturing data. Uh, I've never captured data to this degree. You know, and people are always kind of come out with the woodwork, giving you some other data that you, hey, what about this other thing? And, um, you know, I, my friend OJ is a lover of data. He's like, well, why don't you capture the times that you put all these entries? And, you know, I, I'm very selective because I realize that that adds 10 to 15 minutes to my day. And then I, I multiply that by years worth of work. And I go, OJ, that would take me 60 something hours a year and right now i'm not willing to do that so i'm i'm still the jury's still out maybe i'll spend the 60 hours maybe i'll start adding that data but until i have an api that automatically gives me all this data i realize that uh computing data manually uh takes time and with that time there are costs you're giving up something yeah, and I don't think of it, there's any other industry that looks at their own personal time the same way that traders do. Like, yeah. I, I just can't think of any other profession that would think that way. Like, yeah, I don't know. That's sixty hours. That's a whole. That's a that's a whole work week. That's a week and a half <laughs> oh, of work. Of nine yeah. to five work. Like, I ain't doing that. Hi, <laughs> right. that's like getting another dog. <laughs> so, um, so. Has your trading style evolved or changed in any way since as the volatility has been kind of compressed? And it well, no. I don't want to say that because I would argue that the market is volatile, but it's not reflected in the VIX. So yeah. has your trading style changed at all, or have you been, I guess, still trucking along doing the same thing? You know, I think I'm more trucking along doing the same thing. Um, I just think. It changes things, and things are different. And but you just kind of like uh, let's say for example, volatility is high. You're getting paid, but right. the moves are crazy. You know there have been days where volatility was real high, and we traded twenty flies in one day just because it was like open, close, open, and you're just like exhausted, right? So while you can make money in those crazy environments, it's also chaos. I don't know. Some of the I don't, great surfers, they go out in storms sometimes because the waves are going to be really big. Cowabunga, dude. <laughs> I, I, and I, I, I do think that you know, a lot of times people say, you know, I don't really think your trade is going to work in this kind of environment. And I always say, give me a day. You pick a day that you think I couldn't trade it. And then I'll go on and I'll paper trade it just to kind of see. And so far, most days I'm still able to to make it work. I have to change the numbers. I mean, if, if I'm getting $20 for a fly, 
you know, I'm going to go plus or minus 10 in adding the next one, and I'm going to make them 15 apart. You know, so it's a bigger range. So you just kind of figure out another, um, I don't know, new game theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get that. So um, I'm gonna. So for, we have a lot of new listeners. I'm gonna jump in real quick. And uh, so with speaking Greeks, I encourage audience participation. So if you have a mic and you want to jump on stage, you can raise your hand. We'll bring you up. If you have any questions for Dale, you can drop them in the chat box. In the top right window, there's a little conversation bubble, and it will say show chat. If you hit that, you can even type your questions in there. Um, hey, Mike J2000, he, you know, the word I was looking for earlier was the law of diminishing returns. And that's what he was, that's what I was looking for. Thanks, Mike. Yep. Thanks. Uh, so you said, okay, so your Discord, you, it's trade diff, which is a trade log, but we have, they have a new baby at home. Is there, is it, other than that, is it, um, is it like more community, just a group of traders? Is there like an educational aspect for people or yeah. I guess right. describe describe the Discord <laughs> and if you know, if anybody's interested in following you back there. Okay. You know, I, I right now there's there's no subscription to joining the Discord and all I ask is that people who join uh, contribute to the community. And I just view it as a place uh, of people helping people, um, specifically as it relates to do-it-yourself investors. Now, the web website at Trade Diff, um, which I'd say is separate from the Discord, I kind of named it that because initially, you know, Mike and I were working uh, on the website. At some point, I envision um, Trade Diff, the website, getting to a point uh, so I guess it would be in the same space as um, Wingman Tracker, uh, okay. uh, which you know was a, uh, an intern from Tasty Trade that started building a site that could help people better measure their trades. And so what I envision eventually Trade Diff getting to is API connections of multiple brokers where we wouldn't have to keep our own Excel spreadsheet, but that very easily we could categorize trades and know exactly how we're doing um, on each trade, uh, selecting our own groups. And it would uh, save people like me 30 minutes every day uh, tracking stuff. Um, and I know some brokers are better about that kind of thing than others, but I'd like for it to be a place where people, you know, that which gets measured gets done. There's a lot of poker players that think they're winning players, but they just don't track their win rate. They just don't track it. So they just think out they're a winning player, but they're unaware that they're really a loser. So I want to be able to allow people to, um, you know, there's an idea about measurement that too many measures is overwhelming and too few are dangerous. So I'd like to give people better ways to track how, what they're doing and how it's doing. I love that phrase too. Like what, what can be measured can be managed. And uh, yeah, I'm big on that. And I think that um, one of the more beneficial things, I don't have one in the speaking Greeks discord, but another discord I'm in, we have a shared spreadsheet and we use Google Sheets as uh, they have a, an import range function. So we can actually import a range of cells from another external spreadsheet. And we'll all import the same statistics, usually like just like win rate, 
our premium capture rate, which would be like how much premium we retained compared to the total amount of credit sold. But the benefit of it is that, you know, like some days you just take a beating and there's comfort in knowing that you're not alone, you know, or on the flip side, you know, if you take a beating and you go look at the group sheet and everybody won, like maybe you need to go back and see like, what did you do so differently than everyone else? So like, I think a, a commute, a community trade log is a huge asset to retail traders. Yeah. And there's a group of us that trade every day together on zoom and, you know, we'll call out trades we're making and, uh, you know, we're I'm writing songs using Chat GPT, and you know it's like trading karaoke. And uh, Garrett, I see Mastro in the group here. He, he's got a, a Twitch where he's spinning records, and you know he'll come on. And um, Sandra, who's on tonight, you know, will break out in song. So you know we're being crazy and having fun, but also trading together. Wow, Sandra. Yeah, we're, we're I'm in like a couple discords with her. I've never heard a song. What's what's oh, up? You're missing maybe, out. Maybe she should raise her hand and come belt one out. I know for the she, show. Should, she should. <laughs> she she belts it out with courage. I often tell her, you know, the the, the key to karaoke is just confidence. You, you know, you don't blame it on alcohol. You just got to get up and do it sober. That's the real challenge. Oh, oh yeah, well, we do karaoke. I'm the coolest dude at the dive bar. You know. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so to anybody that's listening, what advice would you have to someone that is aspiring to either start trading or maybe even make the leap to becoming like a full-time trader? Would you, well, first off, let me back up. Would you consider yourself a full-time trader or do you still do consulting work? You know, like I'll, what... I'll, I'll take opportunities as they land in my lap. I'm not actively out there um, hawking myself. Yeah, okay. But as, so, as somebody comes, calls in and says, hey, hey Dale, you want help with this project? Uh, I'll say sure. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of in a similar boat when it comes to IT work. Like, I, I don't do it, but, like, if someone comes to me and has something interesting to work on or build or whatever, like, yeah, I'll jump on that. Right. You know, as I age, I, I don't it's not as fun for me to jump on an airplane and, you know, fly somewhere, do a lot of traveling. So it gets extra points if it's stuff I can do that's local, as long as I can be home and, you know, hanging with my dog in the evening, you know, that, I'd rather do that than flying all. I mean, I've, I've traveled 70% before you know, I've, I've traveled, I've had 183 days of scheduled training a year and I don't want to go back to that, but you know, um, 20 days a year. Okay. I'll do some and then, training. And then for the other question, if so, what advice would you give to someone that was either thinking about seriously considering trading like outside of like Robin Hood YOLOs or like I said, maybe taking the leap and either retiring from their job or yeah. quitting their job completely and just going yeah. full all in trading? Well, I think most people probably underestimate what it takes in terms of a lifetime of income necessary especially when you start dialing in um, insurance medical insurance for your family uh so kind of there's multiple things one are you the sole breadwinner you know are you are there multiple breadwinners within your family you kind of want to make sure that you've uh you're in a financial position to make it work so don't underestimate that 
Um, play for the long term, I think, would be my advice. It's Life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. My personal preference would be to build a portfolio career where you can do a number of different things, a number of different income streams. You know, you can have a rental house. You can do some side gigs. You know, you can do some trading. And then you put it all together to formulate stuff that you enjoy doing. I, I think the first goal when you're starting out, the first measure of financial freedom is never to have to work in a, to, in a job that you hate. That's yes. your first goal of financial freedom. And I think if you're good, you could probably get to that level sometime in your late 20s. Never to have to work in a job that you hate. The next level of financial freedom, I think, is the ch- the the chance to get out of bed and do pretty much what you want to do that day. And I think a person, if they play their cards right, could get to that level, I don't know, 40s to 50s. Those are just two levels of what I consider wealth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just thinking because, like, I guess, like, one of my pet peeves in the, you know, Twitter fin-twit space is that this illusion of, you know, having just having enough to get to not violate pattern day trader rules. And all of a sudden you can be a, a full-time trader and like, you'll be able to generate an income based on $50,000 or, or so. Right. And the, it, it's just selling a pipe dream to people. And is it possible? Yes, but not without some luck and luck and risk really. So, yeah. uh, and even then, though, the only reason it's possible is because you hit a home run that gives you enough capital to be able to do those small, what do they call it, like base hits versus yeah. uh, versus like Grand Slam. So. so you'll have a lot of ton of people hawking their get-rich-quick schemes. Oh, yeah. To the uh, naive. And then, meanwhile, um, you've got the financial industry that would have you believe certain things and one of the things they would have you believe is that um one it's too hard and two uh you're too dumb to do it therefore you got to pay us the big fees to do it for you it's it's manufactured complexity and i don't buy that i think nobody cares about your money as much as you do and if people would just, let's say you spend 30 minutes a week mowing your lawn. Why don't you outsource that and spend 30 minutes a week just learning how to manage your financial future? Yeah, for sure. And like this is this is trading related, but like, you know, I'll have people ask me like, oh, I could never do that. You know, and they, they, they reference like a candle chart. And then when you explain like what a candle actually entails, like open, high, low, and close, and they're just like, oh, that's it, you know. But they see all the lines and colors, and they kind of fall apart. And even not like even outside of trading, though, I know before. So I I traded crypto. I did very well. It it was more luck than anything. Um, everyone's a genius in a bull market type thing. But um, when I cashed out, my plan was to give. 
the money to a financial advisor for like a year until I learned how to manage it myself. And it was like the most ridiculous thing. And then I remember listening what really, there was like two things that like made me fire my financial advisor. And it was one, there was, I think it was like October of 2018. There was a moving average, like the cross, the death cross or whatever. And, you know, I'm sitting there like, yo, we need to go to cash. And he's telling me just buy and hold, weather the storm, blah, blah, blah. And I got lit up and I was right. So like, I was kind of, uh, vindicated in my that i was right and he was wrong whether i was whether i actually knew anything or not is debatable but then the other thing was that i was listening to um i think it was called unshakable by tony robbins and and he was talking about financial advisors and he basically laid out the their their business model and how it works and then like no shit that evening my financial advisor calls me and he starts trying to sling life insurance to me (laughs) <laughs> and it was like right out of the playbook. And I was like, I, I was like, oh, let me think about it. And then the next day called him and was just like, nah, dude, like, why are my money out? I'm out. I'm done. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, Mark, so there was there was a question in the chat if there was any more boot camps coming up. Yeah. You know, I have no plans for it, but I'd say why not? Uh, you know, it'd just be a matter of kind of putting together. Uh, some of the things uh, that Mike had. So, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a super fun way to do it, too. And it's different. It's not just, you know, pre-recorded videos getting thrown at you. And, like, maybe if you're lucky, a quiz or whatever. It's very hands-on. Yeah. And, uh, like like I say, I think community is important. Like you said about the Zoom, the Zoom call, like basically a virtual water cooler. Right. Well, I, I've paid uh, a, a promotion for Sandra in the chat. So thank you for that, Sandra. <laughs> so does anyone in the audience have any questions yeah let's bring it out of the woodwork and i'm looking at here uh tammy's a good friend of mine we've had um occasionally we'll meet for happy hour um uh, sandra trades with us every day garrett's a good friend i'm always checking in with him mastro He's got a online the routine trader where he gives a briefing every morning, some good stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know why Garrett doesn't have a a crazy Twitter following. Yeah, I, I'm a, a big Garrett big Garrett fan over here too. Oh yeah, he spins records on Twitch. He's bringing all of his portfolio like learnings into doing other things. Uh, Bill Donovan trades with us every day. I think Roger L. If, if that's Roger from New York City, you know he's he trades with us. Nancy uh, also trades with us. Traded with us today. SD uh, is working on some indicators that we can use for iron flies. He's watching volatility closely, so he's a programmer too. So these are good, really good folks, and they're active on social media, and so it's it's a great community. Yeah, so if you're one of the new people from Speaking Greeks and you see some of these names in the chat, like definitely hit them up. Sorry for your your inboxes, but like they're always always super helpful and willing to answer questions, as long as they're good questions. Don't hit them with like a what's what stop do you use? <laughs> but uh, says, what'd you say, Tammy's yeah, favorite question? Tammy's what, saying, what order, me a, order me a uh, margarita. You know, I love Tammy's response to people coming out of the woodwork asking her to package data and some other 
different way. She's like, I would be happy for you to do that. That's such a great idea that you have, you know, but, you know, <laughs> she, she's just such a, a, a good, so good at not allowing other people to give her work to do. What? So what, well, uh, I think, I think everybody in zero DT land knows Tammy. So yeah. while she's muted, what kind of margarita does Tammy drink? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think, I think she does just the regular, She's just the OG off, margarita lime and regular off the shelf. I'm kind of, I'm more of the regular frozen with salt. You got it. Okay. Yep. So what, what kind of margarita, what kind of margarita you drink? Or you know, oh, I, you know, I will, I'll do like the mango margarita or something. You put a, like a spicy rim or a salt rim? No, I'm, I'm a salt guy. Okay. Okay. I, you know, I got turned on to uh, strawberry margaritas with spicy salt rims. Okay. So like, or like a tahini rim if you can't find anything spicy. Uh-huh. Putting tahini. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a Mambo Taxi margarita that it's it's at uh, Mikosina that those things are potent, and but they're good. Very awesome. Yeah. Uh, Gus asked, are there bad days for flies? Are there bad days for flies? And that because some people believe that Thursdays are not good in general for zero DTE. I, you know, go ahead. I, I would answer first. I have not uh, run particular days of the week. Uh, you know, my friend always calls Tuesdays turnaround Tuesday. Uh, but I don't uh, Now, are there bad days for flies? The answer is yes. And if the, if the, Price looks like uh, an EKG machine, the heart rate monitor, you know, boop, boop, you know, a lot of moves, uh, 10 points or more, and then 10 points or more in the other direction several times. You can be pretty sure that day was a difficult day for flies. Because I, you know, I'm not, uh, there are people who trade flies like Gresky, um, to skate where the puck is going. Yes. I tend not to do that. So I'm not really trying to predict where price is going. I'm merely moving my buckets around to where price is currently coming. And then uh, to answer the, the, the part about the Thursday thing. So um, that is one thing that we have seen at least in 23. And I guess my answer regarding that is like, yeah, Thursdays do suck this year, but at the same time, like last year, 2022, Tuesdays were the day that sucked. And it's when, my question is always like, when does that change? And so for me personally, I I just keep, I keep banging that sell button regardless because, you know, 2024, Wednesdays might suck. And I don't know when that tide's going to turn. And then you can run statistics like 100% of the people who have cancer have drank water in the last <laughs> week. Does yeah, that mean yeah. that water causes cancer? So you can, you know, sometimes we miss like the causal relationship, but I, I, I have had that question enough that is, is on my list of things to consider is to package it by days of the week and see what my win rate is for every day of the week to see if there's anything there. It would be yeah. interesting to see how closely it lines up to the zero DT strangle sellers, 
and yeah. to see how because like you said um like an ekg machine that whipsaw back and forth like that that's the death blow for us uh, strangles too you know we're getting hit on the put side and then the call side and we're getting double stopped and like those end up being like generally bad days i will say that july and august for me have been difficult on trading uh puts and call spreads i typically don't have as nearly as tight a, a stop loss on them as tammy does and that may be why but i think july and august have been uh more difficult for me in puts and call spreads than they have been in in uh, iron flies how does the end of the day balancing affect your trade well the last 10 minutes we always call it the 50 bot and i don't know if that's what you're talking about but at uh, one at, at two fifty central time, so like ten minutes before close, there's that end of day balancing, and you can almost see price start to kind of bounce around. Um, it can be it can be crazy, and you know there's people who might choose not to play in that last ten minutes, and I totally understand that. Nobody ever went broke by taking profits. But on the other hand, you might miss 25% 25 to 30% of the entire day's theta decay by getting out. So there's a Chinese word for crisis, and it's a symbol that means danger and opportunity. Both are going on simultaneously. So you could choose to take your money and run by taking a nice profit, five to six dollars, which is a lot of money. But if you do, you may also miss a few, you may miss, you know, there's times where a five to six dollar loss will go down to a two to three dollar or a five to six dollar win will turn into a two to three dollar win. But there's other days when a five or six dollar win will turn into a ten or twelve dollar win. So by it's kind of like pick your poison as Sandra frequently uses that term. Yeah, there and there's there's a group of us that like when we get close to like round numbers, you know, like forty four hundred, and we'll just go and sell like a lotto ticket and just let it go. Defined risk, no stop, no no reentry, nothing. It's just forty four hundred sounds like a nice smooth brain number to stop on, and then it turns it's like a football game. We're all cheering for it, like go up, go up, go down, go down. Oh yeah, <laughs> I used to, to have that pin. I used to have a music playlist for up moves and one for down moves. So up moves would be like, uh, get on up, you know, like James Brown or something. You know, like, <laughs> get down on it or something like that for down moves. And so I had an entire playlist. The question Marksman asked is, uh, what's the ratio? And uh, can you explain what you mean by what's the ratio? And while you're answering that, I will say uh, so much of whether or not you decide to take the money and run or or um, take it into close, it might be driven by uh, your own playing style. You know, what's your comfort level with risk? You know, there's some poker players that play what I call small ball. They're just like small ball poker. They're hoping to have uh, some small wins. And there's other people that play for stacks. And, uh, you know, What's your level? What's your comfort level with swings and which one? Yeah, that's what. That that's kind of how it is when we sell like those round number flies. It's like they're like five. Well, recently they're more like five wide, you know. So it's like a one to one (laughs) risk ratio. Nothing crazy, just something fun. Because 
you know, some days they're losing days and it brings a little bit of happiness to the end of the day. Tammy's asking me, which are you playing for stacks or small moves? In poker, I'm more playing for some small wins and uh, to have a good time. Um, you know, I think in, in trading, I guess a question would be, if you've got a $5 win, what's going to hurt you more? Uh, taking it from a $5 win to a a $1 loser or to miss out on a potential $10 win, which is going to hurt you more. I, I already, I know the answer I, and I, it's probably subjective, but for me, it's missing out on that win. Like we did yeah. uh, for a while there, we were, we had some like early closing in our zero DT strangles. And prior to the back test, like, some of the days you felt like a genius because you see in that group sheet, people are losing and you're winning and you early closed or you did this and did that. And then we ran it through like option Omega and it didn't help the drawdown at all. And then you, then you see other people are winning and you got stopped out on your Titan stop and you yeah. left a lot of money behind. And like, I think that hurt more than seeing the, the, the opposite, the opposite. Now, I tend to uh, take profits at 50%, but not because I, it's more for, I, I view it like uh, the convenient, I'm the convenience store owner and I want to do inventory turnover. So I'm using the put call spreads and put spreads, the same buying power to buy, to open and close uh, and take 50% multiple times throughout the day. So you're kind of reusing the same buying power. And now I've started recycling my long legs on puts and call spreads. Um, I call it the recycling program. <laughs> yeah, that's. I, I did notice how much money I was uh, I was spending by not reusing my longs. Yeah, and now it's, it becomes a significant amount. I don't recycle on the flies. And the reason is, and Sandra the other day, she figured out if she recycled on her fly strategy that she would save something like $4,000 a year. Uh, but what I view it is, it, I want to be able to control my buying power and know, but it, it would make my buying power be variable. And there may be other times where it might keep me from putting on a trade because all of a sudden now you've recycled along, but you don't have enough buying power to put your third fly on. So it may cause me to miss opportunities. So for that reason, as they say on Shark Tank, I'm out. That's the reason I don't recycle on uh, flies. And then Mike J asks, do you track your average return on capital or buying power? No, but it's on my list of things that I want to do. And the reason I don't currently measure that is because I don't track the width of my wings. But I'm going to, I think I, I'm just really particular about which new data points that I add to my repertoire. <laughs> it may sound quirky, but I mean, I'm already spending 30 minutes a day on data compilation. And uh, I don't know, I'm picky about turning it into 45 minutes. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And it, it's like, and then it's like, does it matter? So I like a yeah. common metric we all track is our premium capture rate. Right. And, and, but like, I guess if you're slinging flies all day, 
and you're not carrying them to expiration like 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 strangles are the pcr probably doesn't matter as much i i could roughly estimate that because it is my estimate that i'm using approximately 7500 to 8000 in buying power per contract that i trade now it would vary somewhat but that's in general about what it takes to trade one contract the way we trade it so i could get um roughly that return on that buying power but if i wanted to get accurate on it i would have to track exactly what the width of the wings are every time i put a fly on and imagine your averagings you know six flies a day 75 days there's four four wings four i mean four legs each leg having a sh- a strike and a width now that that's a you're that's yeah, enough balloons really cross-sided fast. yeah try and input all that data in so and, is six was six in a, is that kind of like your average number or is that just an example you use yeah well you say you last about time six? Day. Last time I averaged um, the average number of flies per day, it was 5.8. Gotcha. It, um, my guess is it's slightly higher now. It seems like we've been trading a few more. So, uh, you know, I think it's closer to six. And then uh, oh, Marksman asked, uh, what's the ratio of a $10 win to $1 losers? I think you said the win rate was like 70, 70%, right? Okay, well, uh, the win rate is, you know, I've had uh, 52 winning days in the last 75 trading days. So uh, 52 divided by 75 is 69% win rate. The average win on a winning day um, is 600, average win per contract on a winning day is $698. The average loss on a losing day is 865. The most I've ever won is $35 per contract. The most I've ever lost is $33 per contract. So that equates to $3,557 per contract or max loss of $3,375 per contract. And then Gus. Gus, I'm guessing referencing back to like uh, the mock. How do you manage like chasing the price at the end of the day? And that that is a good question because like when we go back to like what I was talking about the flies that like we'll throw on, and like sometimes like that last minute candle just jumps, yeah. and you know it'll clear that five wide or ten wide spread in thirty seconds. Yeah. So yeah, how how do you manage that at the end of the day with this is all manual? Yeah, the last two minutes. I'll just let it go. If something violates a range and I'm supposed to close something, I just won't close it that last two minutes. Just like, okay, I'm letting the cards fall where they may. Well, I guess, yeah. And I guess it can't be that bad if you have, uh, if you have three, three profit tents, mm-hmm. like how, how damaging can it get in those moves? Yeah, you well, know? I guess. So that's my own rule is the last two minutes. I'll just, 
let the cards fall where they may. But if it has prior to that and it violates that rule, I will close something and I will add something. Like today I sold one uh, for $3. Um, and the $3 was on the 4430s. And then immediately price shot up. So I only got $3 and something for those 30s. So I ended up losing money on the 30s, but I made bank on the 35s and 40s. Okay. Yeah, I gotcha. So my 35s, I had sold for $8.05, and I only gave back, you know, a, a dollar one on that. So it was a $7.05 profit. The 40s, you know, I got $9.50 for that, and I gave back four. So between the two of them, you know, the 35s and 40s made some serious dough. In the 30s, I only gave back a small amount. So a great day, a great day is when you got three flies and all three of them make money. A good day is when two out of three of them made money. You know, an okay day is when just one of them made money. Yeah, this is this is super super cool. Um, the wheels are turning. That's all. It's <laughs> I'd, lo I'd love to um, create a simulation, and I can envision you know, a person with a pitcher of water and I've got one, two or th and three glasses and this pitcher starts flowing at 10 a.m. Not a very tr fast trickle at all, just a slow trickle. And then it slowly gets faster and fast. And you're moving your pitcher this way from right to left, which is to simulate the movement of the market. And you're closing a glass and moving a glass and each time you're closing it there may be some cost to closing that glass and then you're opening a new one and collecting another amount for that and you're just kind of it's almost like this video game and then as you get closer and closer to expiration that that water is pouring fast <laughs> yeah yeah no i i get it i think uh I would yeah, love to I, find somebody I, just, who was into graphic design who could animate that just because I think it would be a way of explaining it to people and then hand it to a gamer and say, okay, play around with this. And Yeah, I'm <laughs> just trying – that's what I'm trying to envision what it's like to trade live and, like, experience it because mm -hmm. I get it. I get it. It's just – it's like I, I'm just intrigued by it. So, Well, I, sometimes like said, the, wheel, the wheels are turning – as Sandra knows, there's times, um, and, and as Fred knows, uh, it's moving so fast, it's hard to keep up with it. Sometimes that works against you, and sometimes it works for you because you just don't have time to adjust, and then all of a sudden, you don't need to adjust. And now the one that you waited on ends up being one of your bigger winners because things changed, and things changed to help it. And, you know, it some you see that all the time in different accounts, some variance between their daily performance because price changed and it helped somebody and hurt somebody else. Yep. So this has been really awesome. Um, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, is there anything else you want to add in or anybody else got questions or anything else to say as we wrap this up? Yeah. Um, guess how do you manage price chasing when opening? Okay, we answered that, I think. 
Yeah. Uh, Marksman says, I play whichever has the highest expectancy value. What's the ratio of a $10 win to a $1 loser? Um, yeah. I, I think, well, what I, what I like about the strategy is I like to have at least the chance, you know, of, for a big win every day. So if I can't put myself in a position to potentially get a $10 win every day, uh, it just feels good to be in that position. You know, we you miss 100% of the shots you never take. And, uh, you know, I like being in a position to ensure, you, but you got to be able to cope with disappointment. And you can't be a, well, you got to resist the urge to be a hindsight thinker. You know, like a poker player, I knew that card was coming on the river. You know, no, you didn't. You know, you just, you got to just, and when you get frustrated, you got to raise your eyes, take a look at the hills, and say, is, is the strategy work long term? And if it does, you get right back in. I mean, it, those $34 loser days, those leave a mark. It hurts. But if the strategy um, over the big picture is still a viable strategy, um, you know, live to fight another day. Yep, yep. I'm big, big fan of uh, spreadsheet therapy. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you got to zoom out and redo your math and just kind of double check things. Yeah, look at the big picture. Am I making money? Uh, how have I done year to date? How's the strategy been long term? You know, and then uh, you know, I don't lose sight of the of the forest for the trees. I guess. You know, so you, some we get so close, we got the imprint, the imprint of the tree on our forehead, because we're just looking <laughs> so close to that one tree. Ouch! You know, and people tend to remember uh, pain more than they remember um, the good things that happened to them. So. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a psychological fact. But uh, pain, pain I, I mentioned this in another episode, but pain is like uh, I forget what the multiplier is, but it's like three or four times more more effective than like great uh the opposite great gratitude that's why poker players are always walking around telling other people their bad beat stories you know like how somebody else drew out on them and you know i always say you know it could be worse and they say how's that and i say you could be listening to this bad beat story (laughs) but every day every day for the last couple of years i've written down the same three things that are descriptive of who it is I want to be as a trader. And those three things are be smart, two, relax, and three, be grateful. And to me, that being grateful is a positive way of framing don't be greedy. Just be grateful. So as my friend OJ always says, uh, it's... You know, jelly is jelly. Just put it on your toast. So if you made if you made money, just be happy. I love it. All right, I think that's an awesome place to end it. Uh, I appreciate it again. Um, I will get all the links for Trade Diff, the Discord, anything else, and I will put it in the uh, epi- the podcast episode description. Should be out tomorrow by afternoon sometime. But uh. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you coming on. That was awesome. Um, really good stuff, trading wise, not trading wise. Just great sound bites and 
sources of wisdom and yeah, it was awesome. Well, thank you, Kirk, and for all that you do uh, for the community. All right. Thank you again, and I will talk to everybody next time. All right. See you guys.